Lazarus is dead. This is what Jesus plainly told the disciples as they waited over in Bethabara. It wasn't far from Bethany, and Lazarus had been ill. His sister sent word to Jesus to come and help them. He loved them. It says in John chapter 11, he loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And they knew that Jesus was the only one who could help them because their brother had fallen so ill and he was nigh to death. Yet Jesus waited there for two days after receiving this message and waited. And he knew that Lazarus had died. And he told his disciples this and they didn't understand. But he knew that this was an opportunity for the glory of God to help them produce uh, faith in their lives because he knew that he would perform this miracle of bringing Lazarus back. But his family didn't know. And so after two days, he departs to Bethany. And the, and the people come and they tell Martha he's coming. And she runs out to meet him in the way. And you must know that she must be wondering, why? You weren't that far away. Why didn't you come and tell us? Why, or come and, come and help us? Why didn't you heed the message that we sent to you that our brother was sick? The one whom you love is sick, is what they sent him. Why didn't you come? And in fact, she tells him, if you had been here, my brother would not be dead. You must, must know and wonder that she must have felt this way. Why did you wait, Jesus? And he speaks to her there in, in John chapter 11. And he tells her of the resurrection. He says, your brother will rise again. And he knew what he was going to do there in that moment. Yet she didn't know. She believed in the resurrection. Sure. She told him, I know that he'll rise in the last day in the resurrection. But he was talking about something else. And what he tells her in John chapter 11, there in verse 25, uh, is simply remarkable. Oh, good call. John chapter 11, 25 through 26. You know, he, he had warned me to turn that off so I wouldn't bump it in my pocket and I forgot all about that. So I'm glad he reminded me of that. John chapter 11, what Jesus tells uh, Martha here, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Jesus asks her, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And if someone believes in me, they won't be dead. Because he knew Lazarus believed in him. And of course, he knew what he was about to do next. But Martha, I don't think she understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. And I think just like Martha, we often fail to recognize the importance and the significance of Jesus and the resurrection. When he says, I am the resurrection, I don't think she really understood what he was talking about. And I think we don't uh, fully appreciate the significance either. And so the central question of the lesson as we go through this, uh, through this study, I want to present to you this morning is this. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection? And I hope to present some information to you that hopefully will affirm your faith in Christ and, and a better understanding of the resurrection and what he means when he says, I am the resurrection. Now, in order to do this, we have to go back. We have to start at the beginning. And it's a good place to start is in Genesis chapter 1. And we'll look at a backdrop because we need to understand how did we get to this point where Jesus is standing here with this woman, Martha, and he tells her, I am the resurrection. What happened leading up to this? And how did we get to this point? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 20, 26 to 27, the Bible said, And God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them, uh, him, male and female, created he them. What we find here in the, in the account of creation is that the, the pinnacle of God's creation, he created humans. He created people. He created Adam and Eve, and they were created in the image of God. Now I take that to, to mean that we were created to represent his holiness in this world because they were perfect. There was peace and there was harmony between man and God, and they perfectly obeyed the commandments of God, and they were there in his presence. What a beautiful picture is painted for us in the creation of the, the special creature that God created to be a living being, an eternal being that has his holiness, that has special responsibility to represent God in this world, bearing his image. And again, there was peace and harmony, yet that was to be broken. Satan, as we know, came and tempted Eve and promised her something that she could not attain. You know, that story is very interesting, and we could spend time talking just uh, this morning just about that, but, but we won't. In short, God created man in his image and in his likeness, and they were already the most they could be in the image of God and like God. And Satan comes along and says, no, you can be like God. How, how, how contradictory is that? How, how foolish is that? And Satan comes and tempts her with his power, and she believes him. And in, in her attempt to become like God, which she already was, she falls to sin and she disobeys God's commandment. Now this introduced a problem into the world. Romans chapter 5 verse 12, Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now because humanity broke the commandments of God and broke the harmony between God and man, we have enslaved ourselves to death. And death is a plague. Death is a horrible thing that God never wanted us to, to partake of. In, in fact, he insists that we choose life and we choose the pathway of life because he created us to be living and eternal beings. And he never intended for us to experience death. Yet Satan comes along and causes this massive problem for humanity. Now we're enslaved and we're trapped to sin and to death. But there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God pronounces judgment against the serpent... There is a, a hint of a promise and a hope that this one day would be corrected because it was a tragic event when humanity broke that harmony. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says, I will put enmity, this is God speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head. The seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent and thou shalt bruise his heel. So it was going to come at a cost. This price to pay to crush the head of the serpent was going to come at a cost. There would be pain involved and, and suffering involved in eradicating this problem. But in these words is, is a promise of restoration. The seed of the woman. It was a human life that caused death. It was the actions of a human life that caused death in the first place. And it would, to correct this error, God was going to do this by the actions of a human life. The seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And, and in this is that promise of restoration and that promise of hope. Now, throughout the rest of the scriptures is woven this promise. This is the story of the Bible. Every time we read the scriptures, every time we're reading in the, in the days of the Old Testament and in the days of the New, it's all about God's restoration plan, how he executed this plan for his people and how he brought this redemption through Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at that story of the Old Testament, 
we see an account of God instructing his people to be holy as he is holy. That's what he created us to be in the first place, to represent his holiness. We fell from that, yet he gives commandments and instructions uh, even to Abraham and then to, to, the, to the Israelites so that they could be holy as he is holy. We see God interacting with his people, blessing them when they're obedient and, and cursing them when they're disobedient because he wants us to live. He's, we see God leading his people about, carrying them forward to this promise and to the fulfillment of this promise of redemption. And what we also see in the story of the scriptures as it, as it relates to, to this entire thread and theme of, of the re- redemption and restoration that God would bring to his people is the response of his people. You know, sometimes we see actions that are faithful and obedient, and there's many accounts of faithful and obedient people. But we also see times of disobedience, times of unfaithfulness. In fact, there's times when the people totally depart from following God's way, and they give themselves wholly to idolatry, and it, and, and it leads them into a path of death. But Paul taught in the New Testament that all of these events, as we read in the Old Testament, are meant as a lead-up to the Christ coming into the world as a fulfillment of God's promise to bring freedom from death. That was the problem in the first place that was, that was brought in uh, by Adam and Eve. Acts 26, verses 22 to 23. Paul says, Having therefore obtained the help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than, uh, than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead. That's an interesting statement. Hopefully that'll make sense a little bit later on. He would be the first to rise from the dead, and that he would show light to the people and to the Gentiles. This is what Paul said the entire story of the, of the Old Testament and the prophets is leading up to Christ and this promise of redemption that God was going to bring. Okay, so how did Christ do that? If Jesus is the resurrection and the Bible says that and the prophets were leading up to this, how is it that he fulfilled this promise? How is it that he accomplished this purpose of God to eradicate this problem of death? Well, we need to understand who Jesus is. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, John, the apostle, writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, by the Word. And without him was not anything made that was made. Everything that was created and produced by the power of God was created through his Word, it says. There was nothing that was made uh, Without him was not anything made that was made, rather. In him was life, and life was the light of men. He produced life, and he produces light. He is the source of all things, and this is speaking of Christ. John, uh, he writes there in verse 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we, he's speaking of the apostles, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is an eyewitness testimony. This is an eyewitness account from John the apostle. And he says, we beheld his glory. We saw the word that had become flesh. And so what John is trying to impress upon us here is the fact that Jesus is the source of all things. He is God, and he is life. And he became flesh. He was the seed that was born of a woman. Remember, Jesus uh, was prophesied of in Genesis chapter 3.15. The seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent. That's Christ. He was the one born of a woman to come and eradicate this problem of death. 
He left all his glory in heaven to come here as a poor and a lowly servant. Yet he's special because he's not just some regular man. He is the fullness of the Godhead. In fact, it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead. Everything it means to be God dwells in Christ in a bodily human form. How incredible is that? That our Savior would choose to come down into this world and lower himself to such a creation. The creator himself becoming the creation. And this was all with purpose. Because Jesus came into this world with one mission in mind. And that was this death of the serpent. The crushing of the head of this serpent. To eradicate the problem that humanity was faced with. That we could not take care of on our own. John uh, wrote in 1 John 3 verse 8, it says, He that cometh, or he that committeth sin rather, is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. You see, that's the entire reason that Jesus came into this world, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus was made into a man and came into this world to accomplish this, because it had to be a human life as God promised that it would be. And this he accomplished through a very specific act. How is it that Jesus destroyed the works of the devil? How is it that Christ came into this world and what was that specific action that, that crushed the head of the serpent? It was death. Death. You might find that odd, but that's what the scriptures say. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. For as much then as the children, his offspring, us, humanity are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You see, Jesus knew what he was doing when he died, and he knew that this action of dying was the action that could crush the head of the serpent. And it says in Hebrews chapter 2 that he did that so that he would crush the head of the serpent. He would destroy him who had power of death, that is, the devil. And in this action, he does something that is so incredible. He frees us from bondage. He frees us from this slavery to death. He says humanity is all their lifetime subject to bondage. His offspring have now, because of sin that we read about in Genesis chapter uh, 3, they brought sin and death into the world. Humanity is enslaved to this problem of sin and death. And we spend our entire lives looking for ways to improve our health. We go through drastic measures to make sure that we don't die and to, to take care of the loved ones that we have to avoid death. Because that's not what... I think that's an inner reflex that, that exists in us because that's who we're created to be, creatures that live, not creatures that die. Because Jesus is the source of our life and he created us to desire life. But Jesus knew that. And through his death, he makes us free from this fear of dying. Now that so sounds odd, but it continues on as we read through the scriptures and study and put these pieces together. He had to die. And in the way he destroys the, the, the serpent and crushes the head of the serpent is because not only did he die, he exercised his power and authority to be raised up from death. It says in John chapter 10, verse 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. 
No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Jesus knew the power that he had to conquer death. And he knew that he was the only one who could come into this world and die and be the first to be raised up from the dead. Now you might be thinking other people were raised from the dead. We have accounts of that in the scriptures. Other people were raised from the dead before Christ was raised from the dead. You know, none of those people we read about living eternally. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead to live to eternal life. And he did that in the form of a man. He did that in, his, in a bodily form. He took that power, he exercised that right and that power that he had to take up his life again. And because he was freed and raised from death, death no longer has dominion over him. That's what, uh, that's what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 9. He says, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death has no more dominion over him. Death has no claim any longer to the life of Christ. He is freed from that bondage. He is freed from that slavery. He is freed from that dominion and that dark shadow that looms over us, death. And because Jesus did this, and it was true for him, he made that true for us. If it doesn't have dominion over, uh, over Christ, it does not have dominion over those that belong to Christ. And that is the greatest blessing, and this is how God brings this promise of restoration about, because he raised up Jesus from the dead. And his resurrection is crucial and essential to our faith and our life, and it's important that we really grasp that and appreciate that. Jesus, in the act of resurrection, fulfilled the promise of restoration. You see, recall, as we've talked about already, man had life, but they brought death through their disobedience. But Jesus restores life, he restores eternal life by giving us life through his obedience. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about this and connects this story arc. Jesus closes this, this story loop. In, since by man came death, human, humans brought death into the world, by man, a human life, came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now that doesn't mean that everyone will automatically have eternal life, but just as in Adam... And, and in that pattern of disobedience, we have a choice. And when we choose to disobey God, we are then taking death upon ourselves. And just like uh, it, Christ, he chose to be obedient to the Father, and he came into this world and had perfect obedience. Now we have the opportunity to choose life and have that reward of eternal life once again. And so he's restored the pathway and the harmony between man and God through this act of resurrection. And Jesus now is the example we look to because he did what humanity could not do. He obeyed God perfectly. And it's interesting how this, how this story, is, it, this arc plays out. Because God created man in his own image and they failed. Christ obeyed perfectly. And the scriptures tell us that he is the perfect image of God. In, for, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, God has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory... And the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. This describes to us the act that Jesus made of, of laying down his life so that he could take it up again. But notice that it says he is the perfect image of God. He is the express image of the person of God. That's beautiful and wonderful because he as the image of God did not fail. 
and he had perfect obedience to God. He is everything that mankind should have been and more. And he becomes the new standard for humanity to follow in living in this world as representatives of God's glory and of God's holiness. Jesus accomplished this through his death and his resurrection for us. So what does that mean for us? As we study these things, it's, it's amazing and it's wonderful and it's fascinating as we read about how Jesus accomplishes this promise of restoration to humanity. But what does that mean for you and I? What's the big deal? Why should this even matter, this story of the resurrection? Well, first, there are real serious implications if there is no such thing as a resurrection. If people really can't be raised from the dead, we have some big problems. Paul outlined some of these in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There in verse 13, he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then, he, then our preaching is vain. And, if, and your faith is also vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Paul outlines for us some very serious implications if the resurrection is not true. If the resurrection is not true, then Jesus did not raise from the dead. He was not raised from the dead. He was not resurrected. He had, and that means if he wasn't resurrected, then he was wrong about what he said. He had power to take his, lay down his life and power to take it up again. No, he didn't, because there's no such thing as a resurrection if the resurrection is not true. Then Christ is a liar. And he's not raised up, and he hasn't eradicated this problem of death. He hasn't fulfilled the promise of restoration. And if that's true, then everything we believe about Christ is vain. All of our faith, everything that we read about and study about and guide our lives by in this book, the very fact that you're here worshiping God and singing praises to him, and we're going to commune and remember his death and his, and his resurrection, and we're going to remember that sacrifice, and we're going to, to celebrate these things. It's all vain and meaningless, and you're wasting your time if the resurrection is not true. If the resurrection is not true, that means the apostles, who as we read in John chapter uh, 1, he says, we beheld his glory. He's speaking of the apostles. He said in the other epistles in 1 John, and Peter also said these things, we saw him and were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We heard him, we touched him, we handled him, we saw him, we walked with him. They, they were liars if the resurrection is not true. All of this crumbles and falls apart. It hinges on the fact that the resurrection is true. And if the resurrection is not true, then our sins have not been forgiven. There was no sacrifice that was made on your behalf in the presence of God. That act that you, you uh, partook of, being baptized into Christ because you thought you were having your sins washed away, no, you didn't. All you did was got wet if there's no resurrection. And you're still in your sins. And every evil deed and everything that you've done that brings guilt and shame into your heart, that you were freed from and you had this great release because you could let that go because you knew that it was forgiven by God. It wasn't. If the resurrection is not true. 
And all those drinks you drank, all those pictures you looked at online, all those, all those cuss words you said, all those times you got angry and, and, and you lost it, all that is still upon you. And you, are, you stand guilty before God if the resurrection is not true. If the resurrection is not true, then all those people that we love, that we were close to, that meant so much to us, that were examples of faith, they've died. And that's it. They've perished. And we will never see them again. They died in hope, knowing that God would raise them up. But he won't if the resurrection is not true. If the resurrection is not true, we have no hope. And we are all, truly, of all men, most miserable. Because there's nothing we can do. If the resurrection is not true. But thanks be to God that it is true. Paul didn't stop there. He continued on in this writing and he says, But now Christ is risen from the dead. And he has become the first fruits of them that slept. He was the first one to come and die as a man and be raised up from that death and be raised up to eternal life. Now death has no more dominion over him. That's how he's the first fruits of them that slept. He says, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all die. So as in Christ, all shall be made alive. Uh, but every man in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, he came and accomplished this first, and then he made it possible so that afterwards they that are Christ would be raised up to, to eternal life and, from the resur- and resurrected in this bodily form at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death because the resurrection is true we have hope we have hope of escaping this this horrible consequence of death and the punishment that we will receive because of our sins because it's true we have hope and because it's true we will be raised up as it says here in a, in a bodily form we will be raised up our bodies they, they when we die are going to go to the grave our soul will go to hades But at the resurrection, we'll be reunited with our bodies and our bodies, our physical bodies are going to be raised up from the dead if we belong to Christ. Romans chapter 8, Paul said this, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit of, that, that dwelleth in you. What a tremendous blessing to read those words. The same power that raised up Christ from the dead, if that dwells in you now because you belong to Christ, you have hope that one day your own physical body is going to be raised up by that same power that raised Jesus up from the dead. And he will make alive your mortal bodies. And because it's true, when that happens, we will inherit the kingdom of God. Because those bodies are going to be raised up and transformed into something capable of entering into the, the real and, and uh, the reality of the, the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's why it's necessary that we receive a new body when we're resurrected. He says, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. These mortal bodies that we have now are corrupt and they're weak 
And they cannot be sustained as, as when we enter into this kingdom of God at the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to God and we enter into heaven. He says, uh, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, this corruptible mortal body must put on incorruption, and this mortal body must put on immortality. What a blessing. Because the resurrection is true, we can inherit the kingdom of God, and because the resurrection is true, we can escape damnation. Jesus said when he returns at that last day, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and all shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life. And that's what we're talking about and studying about this morning. But he says there, everyone will be raised up. And some, he says, they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Some people will be raised to receive the punishment because they are not in Christ. And so all, though all will be raised up, not all will experience the blessing of the restoration of God's promise to have life. Jesus' resurrection is the proof behind our hope to escape the destruction of hell and to receive a new body that's capable of living in the presence and the glory of God for eternity. That's why it's a big deal. That's why it matters. And that's why we should care. Now the next question we need to ask is how do we partake of this? If this is true, and these are wonderful and amazing and incredible blessings that we need to partake of, and we, we should have a strong desire to partake of, how do we know if we are truly a part of this, this group that will be raised up to the resurrection of life? How can we have confidence and live confidently that we are members of the body of Christ? Well, the Bible gives us very clear instruction here. He saves us through the gospel. The gospel, Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory that which I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. You see, the gospel is the death the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Christ died to offer the perfect sacrifice to God in, in the offering of his blood. He was buried, and that proves to us that his body was separated from his, his soul. His soul went to Hades, and his body went to the grave. And for three days, that's where it remained. But on the third day, it says his, he, he was resurrected. That means his soul came back into his body, and God raised him up. And now Jesus because he raised up, he, ra he was raised to eternal life and death has no more dominion over him. That is the story of the gospel. That is the message of the gospel. And God saves us through this act. And because the resurrection is true and occurred, God can save us through that power. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3-4. through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, or made us born again, unto a lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The very fact that Jesus was raised from the dead is, is what enables the power of the gospel in the first place. His resurrection is key. And without it, we cannot have salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together. That means he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. That's the grace that we're saved by, that God would take us, dead and dirty sinners, 
and cleanse us and give us life with his son. And it's all enabled by the resurrection. But how do we know? Because we can't simply believe and have a feeling in our heart and know that, that we are part of this life that God promises to make us part of in Christ. God gives us the information and the instructions that we should, we should take. The steps that we should take to know that we are in Christ. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, notice the emphasis here on the resurrection. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. We're baptized into that blood sacrifice that cleanses our sins and gives us a clean conscience. And he says, therefore, uh, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted, or another word is united, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, the same thing is true about his resurrection. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Do you see how baptism is a picture of being raised up again from death? God saves us from our sins, he cleanses us, and he makes us alive once again. We're born again. Colossians chapter 2, Paul said it this way, and you are complete in him. You are complete in him, which is the the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. It's a spiritual action that takes place when you're baptized into Christ. He says, in the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. God is removing sins from you. Well, how does this happen? You are buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him. That sounds exactly like what Paul was saying in Ephesians chapter 2. He was rich in mercy, and for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he's quickened us together with Christ. The way he quickens us together with Christ is when we die to our sins, and then we're united with Christ, and he's made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses. We cannot have our sins removed until we are baptized into Christ's death. And then he makes us alive again, and we're raised up to walk with Christ. So it is an exact picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, because we choose to die, and God will remove the sins from us when we are baptized into Christ's death, and this, this spiritual circumcision takes place, our sins are removed, and just like Christ, as he laid there in that grave, his, the, his life was brought back into his body. God gives us his Holy Spirit and brings us to life. And we're raised up from that water as a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're made to walk in newness of life, he says. And notice also that it's not just a picture of our lives being restored and us becoming part of this restoration promise now. It's a picture of what's going to happen in the future. When our bodies are laying in the grave, God's power that raised up Christ from the dead is also going to raise up your mortal bodies from the dead. So it's a picture of the resurrection that is to come as well. And it's all enabled and powered by the resurrection. Peter said this in 1 Peter 3.21, the like figure wherein to even baptism does also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. You want to know how to have a clean conscience? You want to know how to have, uh, be in good standing and have peace and harmony with God? It's the resurrection of Christ. And it's the act of baptism 
that will wash you and cleanse you and unite you to Christ and raise you up to walk in newness of life. Because that's what, that's what is written here by Peter says. Baptism does also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what an amazing blessing that is for us to be able to have shown to us in the scriptures. So it's by Christ's resurrection that we are born again from a life of death into a life of, of, of this blessing of restoration. God has ordained that we should be baptized into Christ's death, accessing and being bound to the power of the resurrection, and he will raise us up to walk in new life. And this not only adds us to the body right now and to Christ right now, it's a picture of the hope we have in Christ to experience a, a bodily resurrection just like he did. What an amazing, that's how we access this and how we can be sure, how we can be sure that we have this hope. So what must we do? Maybe you've done this. Maybe you're sitting there going, yeah, I, I know all this stuff. Let's just, let's just get on with it. Well, I hope that it's impressed upon you the power of the resurrection. And I want you to know that if you've been baptized into Christ, you have an important responsibility. This isn't some game we're playing. This isn't, a, this isn't some lightweight decision that you just make in an instant and then you don't stick with it. It's not like some kind of diet, which I've tried to do several times. I think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this diet and then I give up. It's nothing like that. This is a real, serious, life-changing decision. And, and if you counted the cost and said you were going to be a Christian and you were baptized into Christ and, and you were made a Christian, you were made part of the body of Christ, you have a serious responsibility. Because if we want to be with Christ when he comes back and we, and we want to receive this resurrection of life, then we have to live a life of godliness. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. Consider that what we read, think about this. Colossians chapter 1 talks about how Christ is the creator of all. He is the head of all things. In Colossians chapter 2, he says, we are complete in him, and we can be joined together with him and made alive with him, being raised up together with him through that act of baptism. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul begins and says, so then, if you then be risen with Christ, it's a picture of what he was saying. You've been baptized and you've been raised up to life now with Christ. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. In, in very plain English, he says, and if you've been joined together with Christ through baptism, then live like it. That's our responsibility. If we've been joined together with Christ, we need to live like it. We can choose to commit sin all day long. It's your, it's, that's your choice, and God's not going to stop you from choosing sin. But understand that if we do that, we're, we're uh, going right back into this pattern of Adam and the choice that he made to break the commandments of God and bring death into his life. But because of Christ and his obedience, we can choose another pathway. That is the pathway of life. We can choose to follow righteousness. We can choose to make good decisions. We can choose to submit ourselves to the commandments of God. We can choose to make our lives look like Christ's. Because if we choose, if we have, if we have chosen to be baptized into Christ, we said that we're choosing to live a life of righteousness, and that includes transforming more and more to look like Christ. 1 Peter 1 Think about this again. God's original intention for man was to be holy as he was holy. When we fell, he still gave us commandments through the law to be holy as he is holy. And when, even when that is done in the New Testament, we still have that instruction from God. That's what he wants from us. In 1 Peter 1, 14, he says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according 
to the former lust in your ignorance. And you know, when I, when I read that word and hear that word fashioning, what comes to mind is somebody that has a marble slab, this giant block of marble, not the ice cream place, but just a, a giant thing of, of, of giant block of marble and a chisel and a hammer in his hand and he is chipping away at this block and he is crafting an image. He is crafting a statue. Now that's an action that a lot of idol creators have, have taken to fashion a God according to their own desires. But the picture that we have in the scriptures is not to fashion ourselves according to the old things that we've done, the old life of sin that we produced in our ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy. Take that chisel and that hammer and chip away at your life and work your life over so that more and more each day you're looking like the holiness of God and you're presenting the holiness of God in an image of Christ because that's what we were created to be, representatives of the image of God in this world. And Christ is the perfect image and so we need to make our life look like Christ's. He says, be ye holy in all manner of conversation because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. That's what God wants us to be and that's what our responsibility is then. And it's all enabled through the power of the resurrection of Christ. His original purpose for us to be holy continues because of that blessing of being united with Christ and now living under his command. Now, again, just as mankind was created with responsibility, we have responsibility if we are in the image of Christ. One of their responsibilities was to be fruitful and multiply. And we have that responsibility today if we are image bearers of Christ. And that means making more souls. Help others do the same. Help others enjoy the blessing of the resurrection of Christ and being made members of the body of Christ and, and being uh, subject to the commandments of Christ. Help other people enjoy this rich blessing. In Colossians chapter 1, 28, Paul said, Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. We want every person to be complete in Jesus Christ. As Paul said in Colossians 2, you can be complete in him if you are baptized into Jesus Christ. And we should have a strong desire out of love for, the, for our fellow man to share this message of restoration with them. Share this hope with them. They don't have to die. They don't have to be afraid of death any longer. We have a very special hope and a very special blessing. And we can teach them about the completeness that they can have. We can teach them about the freedom that they will experience and enjoy in Christ because of his resurrection, because he's our only hope in this world. As Jesus stood there with Martha, he explains to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And I want to ask you the same question that he asked her. If, if you are, are here listening and you know in your heart that you have not been baptized into Christ, you have not received Christ according to the scriptures, and you are not joined together with him in the power of the resurrection, and your life exists now outside of Christ, and you, are, you have that looming shadow of death over you, and you want that removed, I have a question for you. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection? Do you believe that if we have a life and we live according to the principles of the scriptures that you will have an opportunity to enjoy eternal life because your body will be raised from the dead? 
If you believe this, the only thing that, that you need to do right now is submit yourself to the ordinances that we read about. Enjoy the blessing of being united with Christ by being baptized into him. All things are prepared here, and the, and the brethren here are excited and ready to help you do that because they want you to experience this joy. But you have to answer that for yourself. I don't know what's in your heart. I don't know what's in your mind. I don't know what you have or haven't done. But if you know, and you do believe this, then take the appropriate action. Now, if you are a member of the body of Christ, you have been baptized into Christ, you are trying to live faithfully, but maybe there's something in your life that is holding you back. That sin that so easily besets us from running this race in Christ. I have a question for you. Do you believe this? It's easy to forget about the significance of the resurrection of Christ. It's easy to go about in our lives and get distracted and forget about why it's important for us to live a holy life. But I want to ask you this morning, do you believe this? If you do, it's going to change the way you live your life. And if you have something holding you back, it's time to let that go. If there is a sin dominating your life, it's time to let that go. The brethren are here and, and anybody that has a need, whether it's to be baptized or to ask for repentance because you want to live a holy life and fashion your life according to, to God. There's an invitation to come forward as we sing and know that it's not for condemnation. It's not so that people can look at you and your life and your sins can be exposed before all. It's so that you can give an account to God and, and give an answer uh, and run to him and access this answer of how to have a good conscience to God and before him. It's, it's with love that we ask you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.